Stand Up for the Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up for the Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your prayers for this ministry and to help us as we battle spiritual warfare, as any of you do who are fighting in your life and uh, standing up for Christ, standing up for the truth. You know, once people know you're a Christian, there will be warfare. Um, so thank you. Also for sharing the podcast because we've been, what do you call it, censored? Suppressed, shadow banned on social media. Suppressed, so, yeah. but but yet we're growing, and um, I know forty-one states at least we've received donations from. So that means somehow the podcast is getting out there. Uh, so it's thanks to you. It's nothing that we're doing. We don't advertise. So uh, praise God for the growth and uh, for people listening. Um, also, want to remind you to go to Red Pill Prince. Check out some of the merch. It's a small family-run business. They are a Christian family in Canada. And they are, they've been just really great as far as the designings of some of the shirts and mugs and over 24 items now. Standupforthetruth.com merch. That's right on our website. A link to their page. Um, what else? Uh, anyway, Mary is back today. Hi, Mary. Hello. And uh, we've got Elisa Childers with us. Can't wait to get into her book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. She's a wife, mom, author, apologist, and speaker. Member of the award-winning CCM recording group Zoe Girl. If you heard that song right before, if you're listening to the radio, not the podcast, um, you heard Zoe Girl. And she's also now speaking at quite a few Christian worldview conferences. She's been published at the Gospel Coalition, Crosswalk the Stream, Decision Magazine, Christian Post. And last time we had her on, we talked about another gospel. And a lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity bestseller, but now uh, just as important of a book called Live Your Truth. Alisa Childers, welcome back to Stand Up for the Truth. So great to be back with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks, Alisa. Now, um, so I'm, I'm watching a video with you and Natasha Crane. By the way, um, what's that called, the podcast? Where can people get to listen to you guys together? Yeah, we just started a new podcast called the Unshaken Faith Podcast, and you can just get that wherever you get your audio podcasts, like Google, Spotify, Apple, all the places. And it's just 15-minute weekly bite-sized encouragements for Christians on how to stand strong in your faith in this increasingly chaotic culture. I praise God, and we love Natasha, and we just love um, just her, like you said, her brain, her mind, the way she thinks and perceives. Um, but so I'm looking at my email as I'm listening to you and Natasha talk about progressive Christianity and other things, and this email comes through: um, What should I do when a loved one deconstructs, leaves the faith? I'm going, jeez, do you guys never stop? So you did that. You did that last night, and I know you're really, really busy. I'm going to let Mary ask the first question to get us going this morning. Uh, yeah, Alisa, um, it is just so good to meet you uh, on uh, this in this medium as much as as we are able to meet. Um, the book is excellent, um, and I have a question about what exactly prompted you to write it right now. Um, but before we get to that, I, there's something in your book early on in the chapter called Trousers, and you're talking about Genesis uh, 11. And you're talking about the tower that mankind wanted to build so they could be one and, and they could um, be gods, basically. And you, you ask the question here, 
because God scattered them. We know how the story goes. You ask the question, why would God blame them for finding one another, living and working in peace and unity? What could possibly go wrong, as we like to say here? And then you liken it to, and I think every parent will understand this, you liken it to when the kids are in a room somewhere and it's way too quiet and something's going on. They are unified, only briefly possibly, but something's going on and every parent knows that. What happened after that, after they emerged from their little unity session? Uh, what <laughs> happened after that? And then you, you talk about... Um, the online uh, world, the world of social media. Now, how does that follow this story? What is what is social media done to highlight the problems of everybody being together online at the same time? Mm, yeah, so this is in part a commentary on two different things. So the first thing is there seems to be this narrative, especially among Christians, where it's like, we just all need to be unified. And you almost get the feeling that they mean unified at all costs, Let's not debate each other. Let's not disagree with each other about anything. Just let's be unified because that's the most important thing. Well, unity is good, and Jesus prayed for unity, but unity all by itself is really not always the goal. And so I tell the story of my kids who, you know, generally they like to to fight quite a bit, (laughs) especially now. And one time they both got really quiet. They went into one of the rooms, and I immediately knew that this type of unity was probably not going to produce something very good. So they emerged from their rooms, this is when they were a lot smaller, and they were covered in uh, paint and markers, and they had drawn on each other's faces, and I just thought, oh, wow, so that they were unified, but it wasn't a good unity. They were unified for nefarious purposes, and that's sort of what we find at the Tower of Babel in Genesis. And so I kind of bring that around to the arena of social media, and it's almost as if we've created the digital tower of Babel, where once again, the world speaks with one language. We all have all this shared information and access to so much information all at the same time. But the question is, is that good? Is that a good thing? And there may be, we can look back and learn some lessons from Genesis 11 as to why maybe God did scatter the people, and, uh, you know, we can... I think, apply that in a real specific way today. I think what you said is very important. They unified for nefarious reasons, and I can't help but think of the emergent church and that whole movement uh, where they were professing to be unifiers, but they were bringing people together for very different reasons. Their social justice gospel, which is another gospel, and progressive Christianity. So is it important to really differentiate unity from uniformity? Yeah, it, it is, absolutely. And biblically speaking, Jesus prayed for unity, but it was unity around truth. Yes. We have to be unified around a very specific thing, and that means that you have to put guardrails around that thing, and you mm-hmm. have to actually divide sometimes, and that division is important because it keeps the unity of the one faith that Jude is talking about. And I think the emergent church is a great example of this because in the beginning of the emergent church, it was a bit of a mixed bag. You Mm -hmm. had more conservative people, a little more liberal people, and it was just about unity. But then, of course, the people who were biblically faithful were saying, well, you know, we need to have some sort of a a basic statement of what we're all unified around. What what are our beliefs, right? Right. right. And the, the more liberal voices were saying, no, we're not going to do that. And so, of course, by default, that pushed out the more biblically faithful people, and that's why the emergent movement went in the direction it went fairly quickly. Well, and look at what's being proliferated on social media. You've got a false teaching, which any teaching can go around the world in 60 seconds or less. Uh, so, And then there's sexual immorality, self-worship, 
misinformation, changing the language, re- redefining what words mean. It, the, the, the confusion, which is, of course, of the enemy, is it's just chaotic, and social media has completely changed our civilization. Mm, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's like I think about when I was a kid. If I wanted to know what someone else believed, I'd have to go talk to them and ask them. Mm. Or if I wanted to look into another religious system, I'd have to go to the library and check out a book or do some research. But today these things are being pumped right into our homes mm-hmm. and yes. right into our hands through our phones. Yep. And I, it's no wonder that this younger generation coming up has largely embraced the idea that morality and religion, these are just kind of things you privately ascribe to and you live your truth and I'll live my truth because how could they possibly even begin to know how to get to the bottom of things when they are getting so much contradictory information constantly? Well, there's an awful lot of people uh, in America and around the world living their own truth, and they're destroying the lives, well, the souls of people, first of all, but the lives of children by getting them to uh, take uh, hormones, all these different things and surgeries. But Instead of going down that road, I want to say uh, kudos to you for opening up the, your book. On page two, I love that you mentioned follow your heart. And I just want to get you to expound on that. I'm going to read a little bit. You said, I can't tell you how many times I've checked social media only to see a message like follow your heart. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, that's nice. I hit like before I have a chance to remember. Oh, wait. The last time I followed my heart, it got smashed into bits and took me years of counseling to recover. Trust your instincts. They never lie. Uh, And that one landed me in traffic court. So, Elisa Childers, talk about, I mean, I hear follow your heart and I go, wow, is that that ever bad advice? But you hear Christians saying this, go with your gut, follow your heart. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because our hearts lie to us, but this is something that is so countercultural right now because our culture has largely bought into the idea that humans are inherently good. This is the message Mm. that's pumped into our streaming platforms, all of the media that is produced, especially aimed at my kids. I noticed this message, and it's actually viewed in our culture. If you're a Christian and you're saying, no, there's actually something inherently broken about us, there's something inherently sinful, something that needs to be fixed, uh, that's actually viewed as a toxic belief. In some cases, people will say that's an abusive belief. So all of the material that's being pumped at us, and sadly, even through vehicles that call themselves Christian outlets, are telling you, you need to do more self-care. You need to just Mm -hmm. do more introspection and search your heart and get down to the bottom of yourself and identify your deepest desires. But the assumption is that what you're going to find down there is something good and trustworthy. But as biblically faithful Christians, we know that the Bible teaches that we're going to dig down inside of ourselves and actually discover desires that contradict what's objectively good, like in reality. And those things need to be repented of. Those mm-hmm. things need some adjustments. They need uh, some change. And and I, I tell audiences when I speak these days that with evangelism, I think one of the greatest challenges to evangelism today is convincing people they're sinners. You know, in mm-hmm. decades past, people kind of knew that, and they were looking for the cure, And so you could offer the gospel as a cure, but today you almost have to take a step back and convince people that they actually need saving. Yes, yes, and I think the second verse of that whole concept is God wants me to be happy. And, you know, it depends on how you find happiness. Obviously, you have to define these terms, and then you'll find out they're not biblical. God wants us to have joy, 
not necessarily to be happy, but I find that a lot of the women's books by like Jen Hatmaker and Rachel Hollis, oh, they boy. feed that. Are you going to go down that road? Yes, I am, because <laughs> I think that I think that us, the gals are so busy, you know, with their kids and their husbands and the things that they have to do, and and from time to time they might think, well, God's holding out on me, you know, I. This isn't the husband I'm supposed to have, or this isn't nice. the life I'm supposed to have. And I think that sometimes when you look at Genesis 3 and, and, you know, Satan said, well, God's holding out on you and there's something you need to know or do or learn that, that will make you happier. So can you talk a little bit about the whole, uh, I don't know if it's not just women, obviously, but I think the women's books in particular pander to that concept that women are supposed to be happy above all. Yeah, and actually, Live Your Truth and Other Lies largely is a response to mainly three influencers. And you mentioned two of them, Rachel Hollis and Jen Hatmaker, and the third one is Glennon Doyle. Mm-hmm. And these are all writers and authors that have gained fame throughout culture, both Christian and secular culture, but yeah. they all started out as Christian bloggers mm-hmm. and Christian authors. And so a lot of women have followed them through their evolution of their beliefs and their writings and all of them have had radical life changes uh, and, and, and continue to say, but follow me and, you know, do what I do, even though it seems that it's not always working out so good for them. So I think it's, a yeah, and that is, you're right, that's the core message is that your life is about your personal happiness. Mm-hmm. So if you're not happy in your marriage, get a divorce. If your kids kind of drive you crazy today, well, just, you know, get drunk. If you, or, or whine about your kids on social media and t- tell everybody what monsters they are, and then you can have a bunch of sympathy and laughter at the expense of your kids. I see that all the time. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and it's a very self-oriented view, and it's not subtle. When you read the books written by these authors, they will tell you outright, you should put yourself first. Rachel Hollis says, you should be the hero of your own story. Glennon Doyle says, you have to stop seeing yourself as broken, and you need to trust your inner self to the point where she says, you need to go in your closet, meditate, and find your inner knowing. And she calls knowing, uh, she, she capitalizes the K almost as if it's deity, and even mm-hmm. says in the book, whether it's God or me or something else, I don't care, but wow. I'm going to follow that inner voice that I find in there. So wow. this is a very overt message. It's not subtle. And Christian women are buying into it in droves. And I, I get women who ask me, well, what about, you know, Lisa Turkhurst? What about Jen Hatmaker? And by the time they ask me, they have already been halfway through the book. And and mm-hmm. they, they don't really know. They know something's wrong. Good for them. They, they can't pinpoint it. But they can't pinpoint it. Yeah. But they've already been polluted is what I'm thinking. They've already. And, and I wish they would not pick up the book until they've done their homework. But that yes. doesn't usually happen. Yes. Well, and I think it's important, too, the one phenomenon that I notice with women is that they're reading books by influencers, but they're not really reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. So when I was reading a, a progressive book about Jesus, I was co- I was reading it with a friend of mine. We were kind of talking about it, discerning through it together. But at the same time we were reading this book, she was reading the Gospels. And we were out walking one day, and she said, it's just striking to me that I'm, it's like I'm reading two books about Jesus, but they're talking about two completely different people. And that was really easy wow. for her to spot because she was in the Gospels at the same mm-hmm. time. And sadly, I don't think many women are sitting down and engaging with the actual Word of God. They're getting their information about Jesus and about God from these popular level influencers. And you won't be transformed by reading about yourself. You can only be transformed by the Holy Spirit in, in reading God's Word. And that's the problem. They're being more and more transformed into a different version of themselves, but they're not renewing their minds based on mm-hmm. what God's Word says. So it really right. is a slippery slope. 
Well, also, they, it, it's so common now for someone to want the latest self-help routine book um, pill, if it, if it could, if there could be a pill, right? They take it. So obviously, it's easier than reading the Bible and studying the Bible and, and having the context and knowing the biblical worldview. I want to talk about that briefly, Alisa, because by the way, friends, we're talking about the book "Live Your Truth and Other Lies" by Alisa Childers, and um, great book, excellent book. I also loved another gospel, but self help books. I mean, <laughs> you could go into so many sections of of, of some Christian bookstores, and unfortunately, maybe sometimes we need to put Christian in air quotes when we even talk mm-hmm. about Christian music or Christian bookstores, because there's a lot of self-help in there. There's a lot of people wanting to sell, hey, just live your best life now and other what I would consider garbage um, that might maybe make you think positive, but it's not rooted and grounded in the truth. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that concern. Right. So all of these slogans are so popular because they sound good. It's kind of the thing you'd want to say to somebody who's maybe gone through a really difficult time in their life. It's so tempting to just, you know, if somebody even has been through some abuse or they've had horrible things said to them, lies people have told them about themselves, you know, you're worth nothing, Mm. things like that. It can be tempting to want to say to that person something like, you know what, you are enough. You have everything you need already inside yourself. Mm. Just Search your heart and find that inner truth and live it out. I mean, I can I can understand why that's a tempting thing yes. to say because it sounds it sounds positive. It sounds like it would be comforting to someone. But even take the phrase "you are enough." Essentially, what you're telling somebody is that whatever is wrong with you, you have to fix that all by yourself. There's some you have all the tools already inside mm-hmm. you. So you just have to find them. But the, the way that fails is because when people really do search inside themselves, they're not going to find the tools to fix themselves. Right, right. Um, Ellie, Ellie Beth Stuckey wrote a great book called You're Not Enough and That's Okay. And in yes. that book, she said, the self can't both be the problem and the solution. I right. think that's such a brilliant observation. <laughs> yeah. That's profound. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And when we tell people you're enough, essentially we're putting a great burden on them to basically fix what their own self probably started in the first place. And even if it's in regard to lies other people have told them, the answer isn't going to be found by just trying to convince yourself that's not true with you know just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. The answer is actually found outside of you in your creator and your purpose as a designed creature and a created creature. And I think that's sadly what is missed so often in these self-help books is the entire purpose for which we even exist, which is to worship God and be in His presence and love Him and mm-hmm. walk with Him and glorify Him forever. Mm-hmm. And if we think the purpose is just to fix ourselves or to find the next you know, fad to jump onto or to avoid suffering or or things like this, we're going to end up keeping a whole bunch of more difficulty and more Mm -hmm. unnecessary suffering onto ourselves. And it's just, it's not a good fix, even though it sounds good. It's funny that you would mention purpose because I think where this, a lot of this movement really started is the purpose-driven life because in the foreword he says, you know, God, God knew you were going to pick up this book because it's no, it's no accident. So it's foreordained is what he's saying, and God longs for you to to discover the life he created for you to live. And when you look online, the purpose-driven life is under self-help category on Amazon. And then he says, you know, none of this is about you, but the whole book is about you. So I think, and that sold how many gazillions of copies? I think that laid a groundwork to get us to where we are now, that, oh, there's this purpose that I'm supposed to find. It's not in me, and yet it is in me. And I think that was the beginning of some of this nonsense. Well, that's interesting. I actually never read that book. I probably should pick that up. Mm. 
Well, also I think it's the, the whole self-help movement um, before this all came on and, and things shifted in the church. There was the Norman Vincent Peels and the, the all those guys, the possibility sure. thinkers and Schuller. Uh, yeah. yeah, they wrote the, mm-hmm. the, all the books that, that got Christians lured in. And uh, anyway, that's a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. But we are speaking with Elisa Childers. The book is "Live Your Truth." Let's veer away from the book briefly, Elisa. And um, you recently spoke. Um, was it in Kentucky? Yeah, it was yes. in Lexington. Okay, you spoke in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, just recently, within the last week. And you were 20 minutes away from the what people are calling the Asbury Revival. And you attended the revival, so we don't have to. Tell us what you saw. <laughs> well, uh, so, yeah, I was speaking in Lexington, and I had seen all over social media. And it was really interesting because I don't know what your social media feed looks like, but mine was kind of split. Many, many people were hailing this as revival has broken out. It's, you know, apparently there was a worship service, if anyone's unfamiliar. There was a chapel service that began on Wednesday. And after a call for confession, uh, apparently like a 100 students bowed their knee at the altar. And then the service just continued and has continued and is still continuing today as far as I understand. So on Saturday night, I spoke at a women's conference in Lexington. And I thought, well, I just want to check this out myself. And I'll just admit my bias. I'm always a little bit skeptical of these things. I think it's a healthy skepticism because I'm not anti-charismatic. I'm not anti-gift of the Spirit. I actually was raised charismatic. So I, I understand that world very well. And, you know, the skepticism probably comes because I've been to a bunch of meetings that went spontaneously long, 24-hour prayer meetings, things like that. Hmm. And I just I just wanted to check it out with an open mind. And if, if God was really moving in the hearts of young people and there was mass repentance and returning to the Word of God and a hunger and thirst to know more about God through His Word, then I think that's fabulous. So mm-hmm. I drove to the, the seminary, or I guess it's the university. I didn't realize this, but they're across the street from each other. So it was Asbury University. And uh, I parked where I found there was a whole bunch of cars and there were a couple other ladies wandering around to where we didn't know where we were going, so we were trying to find it. And a student, a uh, sweet little student girl walked out of the dorm and she helped us find where we were going and now she did explain that it was Sunday morning so many of the students had been told to go to their churches and maybe give testimonies about what was happening she also said things tend to be kind of slower in the morning so granted it wasn't at a peak time Mm -hmm. I was about 8 a.m. on Sunday morning but I walked into the chapel and there were about 20 or 30 people scattered throughout and uh, people were mostly just kind of sitting there, either talking to one another or sitting quietly. There was a young woman on the stage with a guitar singing some songs. And it, it honestly, you know, it, it just felt very sweet. There was nothing weird going on. It felt a lot like what I experienced at churches across the country on a Sunday morning when people are waiting with expectation for their service to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sat down, I prayed for a little while. I asked the Lord to give me wisdom, to give me eyes to see, ears to hear. And that was that was about it. So it's kind of um, anticlimactic if if he, you know it, it, apparently this isn't happening as it happens at all times. So I kind of hit a time when it wasn't really much going on. But the, I made a video about this because I I wanted to tell people that I think we need to be really careful when things like this happen. And one of the main concerns is that I think that sometimes we can define revival in an erroneous way. So revival, according to the Bible, is marked by repentance. Mm-hmm. And and that will be evidenced by the fruit of obedience in people's lives. Revival is not 
an extended worship service where people are having some kind of mystical experience with God. At least biblically, that's not what it is. There's no precedent like that in Scripture. Um, and so I think we need to be very careful when we just rush to call something a revival yes. because there's some sort of a, a, a deep connection or emotional experience with God. And I'm not saying that emotional experiences with God are bad. Those can be very meaningful and very good. And I said in the video, I'd much rather these kids want to gather and sing and pray than go to a bar. Yes. Um, but let's, <laughs> let's press the pause button and see if this produces the fruit of obedience in their lives, where we're mm. seeing people, um, you know, preaching the gospel with renewed vigor, wanting to read God's word with renewed excitement and hunger and thirst. And then the second concern I have is just the social media component. There's just so much hype on social media which, of course, is going to put pressure on these kids. Now everybody in the world knows about them. People are driving from all over the United States and getting in airplanes to go there to try to get some kind of experience or, you know, like it's a Holy Spirit hotspot. And I just that's just not how things work. And the final concern I had was just that I think movements like this are very vulnerable to being co-opted by uh, there's these revival movements that travel around and they're just yes. seeking after revival, the New Apostolic Reformation. Um, I've done some podcasts on that if anyone's unfamiliar. And they try to manufacture revival. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened at Asbury, but movements like this will try to hitch themselves on to things like that and can have a very corruptive influence. And so I kind of just, in the video, I'm like, just leave these kids alone. Let God do what he's doing and let's see what happens and go to your church, live faithful lives in your own uh, home, disciple your kids, love your spouse, serve your neighbors, and read the Bible. And you have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. You don't have to go somewhere to meet the Holy Spirit. And that was kind of my main point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not. Ju- I mean, again, I'm not saying what, what's happening is not a good thing. I just, I'm just saying let's let's be discerning as Christians. Yes, there's a little history behind this too, Elisa. From what I understand, in 1970 there was a revival there at Asbury College and uh, Asbury University, and so. Um, the, what you said is very interesting. On social media, there's a tendency to, hey, this is a good thing. Let's put it out there. And then they start tagging it revival, and then it gets all this steam. But thank you for mentioning those who would want to co-opt this, like the NAR. We've had Holly Pivick and Doug Guyvett on the podcast, and we've talked about the NAR quite a bit. And my goodness, mm-hmm. it, there's some subtleties there. There's some, also some things that we should be concerned about mm-hmm. as far as what they're trying to do. And I'm grateful that there really was no social media during the Jesus movement. Because because I got yes. saved out of that towards the end, early 80s, and, and it, God didn't need social media to reach Wisconsin <laughs> from something that started in California. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and God, you know, the, the whole idea of, of now having prophecy come back to the fore in the church and music that we could all relate to was wonderful, but there was no social media. So God doesn't need that, even though that's, that's what right. we have. Well, and I'd love to just say one more thing, if I could, because my dad was uh, one of those kind of primary, he was in Love Song, which was one of the bands that came out of that whole Calvary Chapel revival in Southern California, and I was talking to him yesterday, because I was trying to process my experience at Asbury, and I said, you know, what was that hmm. like when you guys all got saved and you were coming to Calvary Chapel? Were these, were these, these like extended worship services where everybody was crying and weeping? And he was like, no, we were just coming to church every night to learn the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And I mean, tr- they, they definitely had music. There was music. Yep. And of course, my dad was a huge part of that. They had Saturday concerts. But for the most part, this was like, I want to learn what God has revealed mm-hmm. in His Word. And there were hours of Bible study yeah. every single night. And it wasn't, you know, real ecstatic experience. In fact, Chuck Smith was famously, famously really skeptical of stuff like that. So <laughs> there was, uh, you know, control and order. And I'm not saying there's not order in Asbury. I'm right. just saying 
that this was a revival that was largely around a hunger for the Word mm-hmm. of God, which really lines, and their lasting fruit has been pastors who have discipled countless people. I mean, I could just name you, you know, you could do that, you could do it as well. Name, you know, 10 people off the top of my head that have had an incredible influence as pastors and disciplers of others. So there's lasting fruit of repentance. There's lasting fruit of the legacy of studying the Word of God. And that's what we want to look for with something mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Elisa, just uh, two minutes left, and I, I hate to open up another topic, so I won't. But I will mention, um, I'm, uh, I've got to repent. I was just uh, tempted to covet some of the guests that you've had on your podcast. Um, <laughs> gosh, Hugh Ross, John Cooper, um, Neil Shenvey, uh, Frank Turek, so many other. I mean, you do one with Natasha Crane. Um, it was just such a blessing to get some of these voices to speak to these issues. And I think that's what we're going to do when we come back. We're going to continue talking about your book. We've got a couple questions that we've got highlighted and marked in your book, Live Your Truth. But there's also some issues that I think we should talk about as well. One of them um, was during the Super Bowl, there was a massive uh, commercial push for this thing or movement called He Gets Us. And I think we need to clarify because they put so much money into this and is there, there's good and bad in this. And I think that, well, I'm really concerned about the message that they were trying to promote. And I think we need to clarify that. And uh, then we've got a, Bar- a Barna research poll. Uh, Mayor, I know you have a bunch of questions about the book, right? So we've got to do mm-hmm. that. Yeah, we've got yep. to do that when we come back with Elisa Chillers. I do want to mention I, I picked up the book on Amazon. But Elisa, it's available through your website, elisachilders.com. And where else? Just anywhere books are sold, you could, of course, Amazon, elisachilders.com, Barnes & Noble, all the places. You can say anywhere where good books are sold. Yes. Actually, (laughs) anywhere where good biblical Christian books are sold. It's just too bad we need to do it that way now, but I think we almost have to. Okay, we've got so much more coming up, guys. And uh, you know what? Even the Jesus movement, Mayor, when you brought that up. I think of how they were hesitant to let the hippies in because of the carpeting, right. <laughs> and they're coming in barefoot from the beach. But anyway, there's so much more we could talk about. We'll narrow it down with Elisa Childers, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Great book. More next on Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Our guest, Elisa Chillers, is with us. And I just want to jump into this before we get back to her book, Live Your Truth, that we, uh, Mary and I, would highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a big, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what do you call that marquee at Times Square? It says, Jesus welcomed the huddled masses. I think they're taking that a little bit from what's on the Statue of Liberty. But anyway, that is part of what they're putting out with the He Gets Us campaign. Elisa, you did a, a great podcast with Natasha Crane on this. And she, as you mentioned, she off air, she wrote an article and it's blowing up her website. Tell us about just a couple of the takeaways and how Christians need to be discerning and uh, before they jump on this and say, hey, this is a great thing, they're going to draw people to Jesus. Mm. Well, so I want to start by saying that I have no doubt uh, that many of the people involved with He Gets Us and many of the people who are funding it have very good intentions to try to introduce people to Jesus, to try to find a way to connect, to make Jesus interesting to people. I'm, I I really want to acknowledge that. I don't think there's, like, this big nefarious purpose. I don't know. I, this just not my—I don't know what the, what the motives are. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to assume they're bad. Um, but if you go on the He Gets Us website and you start watching some of the videos, 
what really emerges very quickly is a picture of Jesus only as a social justice warrior. Mm -hmm. And with uh, videos like Jesus was a refugee or Jesus, there's one video, in fact, on my podcast with Natasha Crane, we actually played the audio from this where it's like Jesus, they almost portray Jesus as being in the street gang that gathered these, you know, these people around and he spoke truth to power and they didn't like it and he interrupted the religious establishment. Well, that's partially true. He did. The religious leaders were not too fond of him, as we know, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't because he was just challenging their power. It was because he was claiming to be God. I mean, the Pharisees were tearing their clothes and wanting to stone him for blasphemy for claiming to be I am. So it's not because he was just kind of this cool street kid that was rebellious. And that's sort of the takeaway from the commercial. And so the concern is that the Jesus that people are going to be introduced to is not the Jesus of the Gospels. It's a Jesus. It's a social gospel Jesus. It's a social justice warrior Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's very concerning because uh, you you can't get that from the Gospels. You just can't. No. Hey, Alisa, before we get back to your book, um, what is your background? You mentioned you were in the, a conservative, I mean, a charismatic church for a while, but I, we definitely know your dad was <laughs> not part of the charismatic uh, church or movement. But tell us a little bit about your background, what brought you to uh, where you are today being such a prolific author and apologist. Yeah, well, my, well, my dad is charismatic. Oh, he is? Okay. Um, my parents are. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, you know, Calvary Chapel is our roots, and then I was raised mostly, for most of my life, uh, we moved to San Fernando Valley, so I was raised as a part of the Foursquare denomination, and then as an adult, I kind of moved away from that and ended up going to a couple of non-denominational churches. Of course, one went super south, wrote my book, Another Gospel, about it, (laughs) Um, went back to a Calvary Chapel that uh, ended up getting really overtaken by NAR, Mm -hmm. and so now we are at a Southern Baptist church, and... I, I kind of, when people ask me, you know, what are you? I, I say, I don't know. I, I go to a Southern Baptist <laughs> church. I kind of like some things about Anglicans, you know, conservative Anglicans, and I, I'm, I really like I, the liturgical side of things. Um, but I just, I just like good Bible-based theology. <laughs> mm. So you said, uh, did you say California, San Fernando Valley? Uh huh. Okay, that's where I grew up. Well, I, I worked out at the radio station uh, KFSG in Los Angeles for a while. And, oh, yeah. and that's Foursquare, sure. you know, Amy Semple McPherson, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's interesting. I th- and you're in Tennessee now, right? Yeah, we live in a town called Spring Hill. It's a little south of Nashville. Okay. All right. So uh, well, let's jump back into the book now. We'll, we, before the podcast, for those of you listening regionally or online, you may have heard a song by a band called Zoe Girl from, I don't know, 15 years ago or, or so. I want to go to page 74 in your book, uh, a little section called Branded. And this is under the, the chapter Cheerleader. So I guess you were the cheerleader then, Elisa? <laughs> yes, okay. I, I was. Okay, so uh, you talked about what, what I found to be very interesting, and a lot of people don't understand this, about the business of the Christian mm-hmm. music industry. And you said toward the end of your performing career, Zoe Girl was invited to a national tour and um, there's an organization that funneled all of its resources, talent, energy, and you say with big-time sponsors, major Christian corporations behind it, the tour was highly anticipated, well-funded, and heavily controlled. This is interesting. Every song meticulously chosen. The staging was painstakingly choreographed. And then you talked about even what was scripted for you guys to say from the stage. Um 
a lot of people don't understand that about certain portions of the Christian music industry. Talk to us more about that. Yeah, well, it's a very corporatized type of uh, mentality, and certainly I wouldn't say that's true of everyone in Christian music yes. or every bit, you know business side of things. In my experience, it was very corporate. It, you know, a lot of the Christian labels were being bought by major secular companies around the time that we signed. So when we signed, uh, we signed a deal with a Christian company that had no secular oversight. Within, I think it was about a year, our record label was bought by EMI, and then Capital bought it, and I think it's still under Capital. But so they had, you know, these secular powers that be to answer to. And this particular event that we were invited to take part of, like I said in the book, is very controlled. So they invited different music artists. This was aimed at young girls. And we were we were not allowed to say anything from the stage that had not been approved in a script. It was basically like, this is what you're going to say. And so um, each girl was sort of given this persona uh, and and everybody had to sort of fit a certain, I don't know what I would say, like a caricature. So there was like the artsy one, the bohemian one, and all of these (laughs) categories, even with the clothing that we would wear, kind of had to match this image. And so I kind of got branded as the cheerleader because I was a cheerleader in high school. That was certainly just a little portion of what I was all about in high school. I was a very competitive athlete. I was uh, really into, you know, Christianity, and I loved Jesus, and I was very into uh, evangelism. But, you know, I got branded as the cheerleader, and so I had to say this really dumb line I didn't want to say. And, and, uh, Wait a minute. you got to tell us what it is now. You can't just skim past that. Okay. Well, the girl, the girl that was kind of got to be branded as the the artsy one, I think it was, or the the kind of yeah, the artsy one. She announced, you know, like I was. I, I'm trying to remember how it goes. I wish I had my book in front of me. But um, <laughs> my big line was, and I was a cheerleader. And because of the setup, it was actually meant to be interpreted negatively. And so you had like all of the the girls who were supposed to be relating to the intellectual artsy one were like, oh, cheerleader, that's so dumb. And, you know, it just, it made me feel stupid because that really wasn't like the bulk of what I was about in high school. And actually my cheerleading team was very competitive. We placed eighth in state. It wasn't like, we weren't just, you know, ditzy girls in skirts, you know, very athletic, but, um, (laughs) you know, it just, it, it was just, that was the setup. That was the big punchline. And, I, it felt so inauthentic to me. It felt very, very deceptive in a lot of ways. It really, I am so not comfortable with that kind of branding and that kind of um, just falseness and fakeness. And it just, I just, it was really a tough, it was a tough thing to have to do. And I did it. I have to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. I was young. And you just kind of get involved in a machine like that and you don't realize that you, you can actually push against some things. So you eventually talked about in that chapter artificial authenticity yeah. versus yeah. biblical authenticity. Right, Mer- and, and authenticity that's built on self. I mean, that's that's a foundation of sand. There's no way because we change. You know, our our emotions change. Everything about us changes day to day, hour by hour, minute by minute. And so you talk about authenticity uh, versus biblical authenticity. And I think one of my questions for you, I guess, is. Back when the emergent church came along, there was a lot of talk about postmodernism, and postmodernism seems to be an umbrella term for you know, authenticity, subjective truth, absolute truth. Could you just explain um, the word, the term postmodernism? Because I, I think it gets lost, but I think it's really a lot of what we're seeing now 
is postmodernism, but mm. a lot of people have lost the, the genesis of what that actually is and, and how we got here. Yeah, that's well put, uh, to put all those things kind of in the same category. So postmodernism is a philosophy. It's really the dominant philosophy in our culture. And I always tell people, we you don't realize that something is the dominant philosophy that you're surrounded by unless you're thinking critically about your own philosophy. What mm-hmm. you know, In other words, how are you going to see the world? What lens do you look into the world through? Everybody has a lens. And so postmodernism is the dominant thing you're going to catch if you don't think critically about what you think about the world. And so postmodernism is hallmarked by a hyper-skepticism, and the hyper-skepticism comes from a rejection of absolute truth. So to put it in its most simple terms, postmodernism can be characterized by the phrase, what's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. And that is dependent upon a rejection of the idea that truth, especially when it comes to religion and morality, is true in objective reality outside of the subject. So it's out, it's independent of people's opinions, what's actually morally right and wrong and true or false regarding questions of God and Christianity. But our culture says, no, those things are just personal and private opinions, much like your favorite flavor of ice cream or whatever mm-hmm. you think the best dessert is. And that's a result of postmodernism. So the postmodern person is going to be very skeptical of religious and moral claims because they don't actually believe those things can be known, if they even exist at all. Mm. So when Christians come along saying things like, hey, uh, you know, marriage should be between one woman and one man, or God is going to judge every person, and hell is a real place, when they hear Christians say things like that, they're not actually engaging with the truthfulness of the claims. They're not going to say, well, is that true or false? They don't even think you can know that. So they're going to be skeptical of your motivation for even saying something. And this is where we get so much of the talk of power grabs and oppression, because people will say, well, the church just invented these doctrines to control people with fear or to protect some sort of institution of power that they want to uphold. And so it, the the conversation is not about what's true or false. It's about, you know, what what is the, who's oppressing who and who is trying to get the power. Mm-hmm. And when people say there's no absolute truth, you want to say, is that absolutely true? Are you are you sure oh, that yeah. there's no absolute truth? Yeah, right. I'm absolutely That's certain. Right. Well, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I love. I, I hear Frank Turek in my head right yeah. now. The way he, he does That's that. Right. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. is that true? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least before uh, we run out of time, I know we've got a couple more questions. But um, what's your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I've just turned in a manuscript. Uh, I co-authored with a guy named Tim Barnett, who runs the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel. And we've written a book on deconstruction. So it's going to be called The Deconstruction of Christianity. Mm. And we're in basically helping the church understand what's happening to their loved ones. So this isn't a book you'll give to someone who's in deconstruction. This is a book you get mm. when someone you love is in deconstruction and how to understand what's happening to them and how you can walk with them and, and minister to them and speak truth to them. Did you, is that one of the topics you talked about with John Cooper on your podcast, Deconstruction? We did talk about okay. that side of it, yeah. Can you please share with some of our newer listeners or some people who are not familiar with what that means? I mean, it sounds like something the enemy wants to do, get Christians to mm-hmm. deconstruct their faith. Tell us about that. Right, so deconstruction is a phenomenon we're seeing happen now, and if, if you're not familiar with the word, you've probably seen it manifest on your social media. So typically what happens is there'll be a Christian author or speaker or musician, sometimes even a pastor or a seminary professor, who will go on social media and say something like, hey, I had all these questions about Christianity. 
no one could answer my questions. And, uh, you know, I've gone through this process of reevaluating everything. And now I don't believe in hell anymore. I don't believe in basically all of the difficult things. I don't believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God anymore. And sometimes they'll completely claim atheism or secular humanism. Sometimes they'll say my Christianity looks a lot different now. I've embraced a broader category, something more universalistic or pluralistic. Uh, and so it, it's generally speaking, it's, it's a walk away from evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, a lot of people are, in the last couple of years, a lot of evangelical thought leaders have tried to redeem the word and baptize it and say, oh, no, deconstruction can be good. Just get rid of bad beliefs and hold on to what's good. And I think we should get rid of bad beliefs and wrong beliefs mm-hmm. and untrue beliefs. And if we have any theological beliefs that don't line up with reality, that don't line up with Scripture, we should definitely change those beliefs and be open to seeking truth. But deconstruction as a phenomenon is very postmodern. It's, it mm. flows out of the postmodern philosophers of the 60s, Jacques Derrida in particular, who's referred to as the father of deconstruction, who didn't believe that words could be pinned down to singular meaning. So for Derrida, the intent of the author, now think about it, this sounds familiar, the intent of the author had no more bearing on the meaning of the text than the interpretation of the hearer or reader. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Mm. And so uh, this, this deconstruction phenomenon is very postmodern. So in the book, we're really urging the Church to not try to baptize the word. And, and let's use, if you want to reform your beliefs, use the word reform. Or some, you know, D-words tear down, re-words mm-hmm. build up. So we want to reform yes. Yes. and engage our doubts and ask hard questions. But deconstruction is not the answer. Well, and sometimes people who use that term, are, they just want to get away from accountability to God. Um, they've been hurt in the church, perhaps people didn't live up to their expectations, when actually they're there to, to follow Jesus, not humans who will disappoint you. But the whole notion of deconstruction, there are actually counselors out there who can take, you know, a person might say, I, I need to back away, I need to, you know, back out of the Christian faith, help me do that. It's very sad mm. because, mm-hmm. um, you know... God is our all in all, and and we can't go along with well, has you know the world says has hath God really said? Is any of that really true? Mm. Hath God really said? But that sounds like something the emergent church was oh, partly definitely. doing. They yep. were getting people to doubt, mm-hmm. getting people mm-hmm. to find Absolutely. another yeah. gospel, getting people to deconstruct their faith. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, I I would say that that's a very fair statement. Yes, it was. They weren't probably using the word deconstruction back right. then, but that's what was happening. It was casting doubt on what you believe, and and the core foundational aspects of Christianity, and specifically, usually starts with the Bible. Mm. There's nobody in the deconstruction hashtag on TikTok or Instagram that's going to tell you to to follow the Bible. In fact, they would say, you haven't deconstructed if you still think the Bible is God's Word or that it's the ultimate source of truth. Wow. Wow. So many things to discuss Mm -hmm. here, Elisa, but uh, what disciplines or practices do you recommend for staying grounded? That was one of the questions that uh, was sent over, and I, I love it because I think people need to know how to make sure they're rooted and grounded in the truth and not uh, swayed or deceived by so many of these people, movements, and other things. Well, I, three words, read your Bible. <laughs> Very simple answer. Easy answer. There yeah. it is. Next yeah. question. That'll preach. That's number one. Yeah, that'll preach. That's number one. But, I mean, the, the theological state of Christians is abysmal. I mean, we've seen the mm-hmm. research that's just been yeah. uh, released through Ligonier, and uh, I can't remember who else partnered with them on that, but just, you know, like like 50% of evangelical Christians don't even, are they not even solid on the deity of Jesus. I mean, we have to read our Bibles, but I also think we need to also 
recapture the art of good hermeneutics. We need to be teaching our kids how to read and interpret and apply the Bible to their lives Mm. and understand some basic principles of logic and critical thinking Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to engage with these categories. And so um, I think critical thinking, logic, spotting logical fallacies, knowing the laws of logic is 70% of the battle because people have just lost their ability to think. And, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't know, frankly, how to interpret a text and follow the rules of logic and grammar, you're, you're, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, Mm. you know? And so it's really important that we not just read the Bible, but also understand how to read it and how to interpret it and how to apply it. Right. And it's not, it's not daunting. It doesn't have to be daunting. Inductive study skills are who, what, when, where, why, you know, who, Who's writing? Who are they writing to? You know, what are the keywords? What do those keywords mean? I think if people would just learn to study and take the time, part of that could be just yeah. having time, but inductive study, anyone can do You've it. You've to take the time. Yep. It's, it's a discipline. It and is. you said something very interesting. People have lost their ability to uh, critically think. Unfortunately, because of the horrific uh, state of our government-run education system in America, children are not taught that. Mm. So if kids are not taught mm-hmm. at home how to think critically and how to have that biblical worldview and and cultivate that, you're going to be in a lot of trouble and you won't be able to give a reason. You won't be able to say, well, why do you believe what you believe? It used to be 50 years ago you'd say, well, because the Bible says so. Well, we need more than that today. We need to, like what First Peter 3.15 says, we need to sanctify the Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Alisa, go ahead and elaborate on that. Well, yes, I agree with you so wholeheartedly. Uh, if you have kids in public school, you really need to get something like Fallacy Detective. Um, it's a great little workbook you can get. There's a, there's a book and then there's a workbook. I've got my daughter going through the workbook this semester at our homeschool. And it just basically teaches them to spot bad thinking, wow. fallacious thinking and fallacies. It, it's, I, it's not a Christian book. It's just a logic book and hmm. called Fallacy Detective. And, great. Um, and it's great for adults, too. Let me tell you, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of adults could benefit from reading Fallacy Detective. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, the, especially like, like you're saying in the schools, I mean, I was at a public school, or, I'm sorry, not a public school, I was at a private school speaking to students a couple of weeks ago. And I asked the the lady who was in charge of a certain portion of it, you know, I just wanted to get an idea of who I was going to be speaking to. I said, are these all Christian kids? Or can I guess that maybe there are a lot of even non-Christian families who have sent their kids here because they they don't want the indoctrination from the public schools? And she said, oh, yeah, it's it's a definitely that's the case. And so, I mean, it's not just Christians that are seeing this. I mean, it's just craziness in our public school system and just in our culture in general, especially in the college system. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And we are getting slightly off the topic of live your truth and other lies. But let's talk about that. What you said in Christian schools or private schools, there are a lot of families that want their kids there. They're not believers. They just want something, an alternative to the government run, what my friend Alex Newman calls uh, government brainwash camps. Um, and that's yeah. putting it putting it lightly with all that, you know, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll do that another time. But it's a very important to understand. Also, some of these Christian schools, they take federal money and then they've kind of got to keep up with the curriculum, they are told. So it's not always a, quote, Christian education or isn't that what you found, Elisa? Well, yeah, it depends on the school. So there are certainly it's, it's 
interesting how different two schools can be. <laughs> uh, like the, my daughter had the privilege of growing up from kindergarten till seventh grade. This is our first year homeschooling this year. Kindergarten through seventh grade was just an absolutely wonderful Christian school, mm. classical education, uh, active discipleship. Bible study, Bible memorization. It was wonderful. Excellent. And uh, her, you know, one of her friends went to a Christian school across town and got completely indoctrinated with radical gender theory. I mean, she could tell you that every flag of every, you know, every category of the alphabet, but uh, couldn't probably spot one logical fallacy. So it is, it's hit and miss. Mm. And I think what Christian parents need to do is when it comes to Christians, even Christian schools, you've got to ask a lot of questions and grill the leadership mm-hmm. as to their philosophy. Do they believe in objective truth? Do they, do they believe Christianity is objectively true? Uh, important questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of Christian schools, if they're a community effort, you, you have churches supporting that school who may not you know, believe the same things you believe. They may not have sound doctrine in certain areas. So, yes, mm-hmm. with Christian schools, you have to ask the right questions. Isn't and, it? Isn't it much harder for parents these days? I, yeah. I have to feel for young parents. Yeah. Barna did a survey within the last couple of years on the worldview, a biblical worldview or otherwise, of I think it was under 35, parents under 35, and only 2% had a true biblical worldview yeah. of parents under 35. Wow. And so for those children in those homes, Alisa, it breaks your heart because the chances of them hearing the gospel or being, well, maybe when they get old, who knows? But when you grow up in a family like that um, and with such a limited biblical worldview now, we uh, believers have to do a better job of getting the gospel out to our culture. And uh, what advice can you give to uh, Christian parents to try to combat what's all the things that are coming against them trying to raise godly kids? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you can't depend on en- on anyone else to do it. Parents, we have to actively disciple our kids 24-7. It has to be uh, scheduled times of reading the Word of God together. There, It has to be organic times of conversation. Ask your kids what their biggest questions about God are. We really can't rely on others. And I'll, I'll tell you this quick little story. A mm-hmm. friend of mine used to do training with Christian teachers about how to teach their students to have a biblical worldview. She actually quit doing that because it was so frustrating that what she encountered, for the most part, were Christian teachers in Christian schools didn't themselves have a biblical worldview. So she ended up having to debate with these Christian teachers because they didn't even know what a Christian worldview was. So it was just sort of this, <laughs> she kind of quit doing it. Mm. And so we have to do this ourselves, and we can't do it unless we are equipped. So we have to ourselves make sure that we have a biblical worldview so that we can pass that on to our kids and let them see us live it out. The yes. Real thing. Boy, that's mm-hmm. tough. Now you not only have to believe it, but live it out. But, uh, boy, parents have a tough job, but you can do it because you can do all things through Christ, and we have been given everything for life and for godliness. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Lisa, who do you have coming up on the podcast? Well, I've got an episode this week with Joshua uh, Ryan Butler on mm-hmm. hell. We're going to talk about hell and wrath, <laughs> so light little topic. <laughs> and, uh, light little topic. Yeah. I've got an episode with... Uh, Shane Rosenthal from the White Horse Inn. He's got a new thing yeah. he's doing called the Humble Skeptic. We're mm. going to talk about that. And I'm trying to think what else I've got coming up. Oh, I've got an episode on Wicca coming up with Amy Davidson, who came out of Wicca and became a Christian, and now she works with Mama Bear Apologetics. Mm. So awesome. uh, I've got some fun stuff coming up. Mm. Awesome. I think that's how I was first introduced to Natasha Crane. I think um, we, I had Hillary Morgan Ferrer. I don't know if I said her name right. 
Uh, she was That's right, from yeah. Mama Bear Apologetics. Anyway, um, guys, uh, Lisa, thank you so much. God bless you, and Lord willing, we'll do this again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right, we're looking at the calendar now. Next week, we've got Heidi St. John, also Jonathan Brentner, Natasha Crane, and this Friday, Pastor Chris Quintana. Thursday, David Horowitz has got a new book out, and tomorrow you will hear from former New Ager, Marsha Montenegro. So thank you guys so very much again and again for sharing the podcast. That's one of the only ways it gets out there, but the audience is growing. That's God, not us, so I'm thankful we can't take any credit. God bless you, and as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.